You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is March 23rd, 2023, 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I thought that we would talk a little bit about intentional positivity uh, tonight. We've talked about enlightenment a little bit in the four path model. But uh, one of the things that's important to, I think, attend to in practice is the development of intentional positivity. Uh, Dan Brown uh, famously said that the absence of the negative is not the addition of the positive that it really is two systems. One is a kind of negative bias and the other is a a positive uh, capacity. And you have to work to reduce the negativity, but then you also have to work to increase the positivity. You can work to simply reduce the negativity and then there's an absence of the negative, but that doesn't then create the uh, positive experience that that you could use to counterbalance that or simply uh, a place to uh, inhabit. Um, When I first met Dan, he said that his goal for practice was rainbow body. Rainbow body is a Tibetan practice where the body dissolves into pure light. Um, And I asked him what it was that you needed in order to come into the state of rainbow body. And he said, Uh, not a single negative thought for a minimum period of 13 years. So if we were to use that for a map, how are we doing (laughs) the development of our intentional positivity, Christian? This might seem like a dumb question, but what, what would a negative thought mean in that contest? Um, well, an interesting idea. What is a negative thought? Um, a, a, a thought that produces an afflictive experience might be a good way to think about it. So that that implies that you, as you get more skillful, you'll understand which thoughts to think and which thoughts not to think. Right. You'll suppress the habit of negative thoughts and replace it with the habit of positive thoughts. I, uh, what's coming to mind for me is the uh, my experience of going to the gym. You've probably heard this story before, but uh, I I go to the gym. I have a, a body like everybody else, and as the body ages, you have to to keep it up or it declines. And the disadvantage of not keeping it up is that uh, you you have less and less capacity to do things, and if you do keep it up. Uh, you have more capacity to do things. And so one of the things that older bodies like is uh, weight training. I know that that may sound barbaric, but you have to strengthen the body in order to keep a, a muscle. Um, I uh, can't find the word, but the, the, the volume of muscle that you have so that it doesn't uh, wither you uh, you do through weight training. So I go to the gym uh, twice a week and do weight training. 
But I used to go to the gym and I would say to myself, this is awful. I hate this experience. I have to do this to maintain my body, but it's a miserable experience. I really wish that I didn't have to do this. And so I would do my workout and it would take about an hour. And then my uh, friend who uh, is in a much younger body who goes to the gym so that, so that he can look uh, brilliant uh, instead of just maintain uh, said, well, that seems like a bad way to work out. Why don't you just uh, say to yourself, I can totally do this. So I went to the gym and I replaced all the negative thoughts about working out with, I can totally do this. Christian has pointed out the word I was looking for was muscle mass. Your muscle mass declines and you need to keep it up. Um, and then I discovered that I could do my same workout in a half an hour instead of an hour, which meant that a half an hour of my workout was overcoming my own resistance to doing the workout, which was happening in this process of thinking and simply moving it into uh, the different thought uh, patterns that saved it. Uh, a lot of effort of just overcoming resistance. My trainer for a while was going, what happened to the person who used to come work out? <laughs> because the constant spewing of negativity was replaced. All right, what's next? <laughs> that making sense? We do uh, have agency in how we regulate our emotions. And all of these things are really, what we're really talking about is regulating emotion. We have a reaction to the conditions of the present moment. If there's an emotional response that exceeds the window of tolerance, then we have an emotional event that needs to be regulated. And we typically regulate that through thinking. So we think a thought that has a regulating quality to it. So another way you might think about this is using only positive uh, strategies for regulating emotional experiences that exceed your capacity just to be with an emotional experience, an, uh, an emotional experience that exceeds the window of tolerance. Window of tolerance is a, is a phrase that Dan Siegel invented in talking about emotional uh, experience. If you have an emotional reaction to the present moment, which falls within your tolerance for that kind of emotional experience, then you don't have to regulate it. It just comes and goes. If you have a, a reaction to the present moment, which exceeds your capacity for intensity of that emotion, then you have an emotional event that needs to be regulated. And then we typically have associated already thought processes that regulate those kinds of experiences. So each kind of experience has a, a thought process that's already associated with it, which just turns on to regulate the emotion. So that training of intentional positivity is meant to replace the negative thoughts that might be generated to regulate the experience of emotion with intentionally positive thoughts to regulate the same experience of emotion. But you have to train yourself to do in order for the body-mind to just do that. Otherwise, you'll recognize that the, the negative thought has arisen in the context of emotional regulation. You'll need to suppress it and replace it with something positive. And as you do that over time, replacing more and more of the negative strategies with positive strategies, the mind is less inclined to think a negative thought. Is that making sense? Christian. So 
forgive my devil's advocacy, but it seems like this kind of practice could have a very avoided. Does it have to be the devil? Can't it be someone else? I, I think it's a bad rap. He gets a bad rap. Um, but like this practice, it, it seems obvious to me that in if you practice a certain way, it could have a very avoidant flavor. You know, like you know, like a good vibes only attitude. Um, of, oh. Like couldn't don't uh, don't like super well, we, avoided people. We call polyannaism. Right, right. Where I'm, I'm not going to. Like I'm gonna hyper avoid negative thoughts because, I guess, I guess the the idea behind that would be that they contradict my worldview or something like that. But yeah, can we make a distinction between reactions to the present moment? and the regulating thought. So we're not suppressing from consciousness our reaction to the present moment. When we have a reaction to the present moment, which exceeds the window of tolerance, we're training the mind to respond to that in a positive strategy rather than in a negative or afflictive strategy. But it doesn't mean that we're suppressing awareness of the reaction itself. Okay. Yeah. So, so not, so becoming aware of negative narratives that you use to regulate emotions and not using those. Right. Now, when we begin then to take apart the, the, the reactive thought to the present moment, which is not a repetitive self-generated thought that's meant to be regulating, why is it that you would have a negative response to conditions of the present moment and not uh, frame it in some way that was positive uh, or beneficial? Maybe we should switch to the word beneficial. They mean different things. Um, a beneficial response to the conditions of the present moment instead of an afflictive response to the conditions of the present moment. Then we would be talking about the database, which we rely on to create our understanding of conceptual reality, which is what we experience as the self. Uh, and uh, how might we uh, develop the perceptual database in such a way that we could respond in a beneficial way to whatever the circumstances of the present moment are? rather than in an afflictive way, um, which is not in any way avoiding the experience of the present moment, but uh, training the mind to respond in a way that's skillful and beneficial. What we mostly do uh, as uh, children, of course, is watch how the caregivers that we had respond to things. And then that begins uh, uh, the basic structure of this database that we use. I'm using the word database uh, loosely. This conditioned uh, response that we habitually use to create the experience of conceptual reality, right? So we have the capacity to sense something. We have the object that can be sensed when there's contact. Consciousness of the sensing experience arises. That's not the self-conscious. It's, it's an, it's not known to the self-experience yet. It's unconscious uh, using um, 
um, the Western psychological term. It's evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Is it neutral? Does it not matter whether it gets attention? Is it uh, pleasant? Uh, and is there time for a pleasant experience? We know from mapping brain time that things that are deemed urgent um, process in three-eighths of a second, go to the head of the line uh, for processing, and require half the intensity of something that's pleasant. So twice the intensity and the duration for something pleasant is a half a second, not three-eighths of a second. So almost twice as long, twice as intense in order for it to enter into a conscious awareness, which is the self-experience witnessing it. Then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's experience that's already in the database, our conditioning that matches closely enough, that meaning is attached to the undifferentiated ultimate reality. And it rolls out into conceptual reality, so that that experience of what's already happened that we've already responded to informs the experience of the present moment. And then part of that process is the intention for an action in response to how we've made up our experience of the present moment. And once we take the action and uh, track the outcome of taking that action, that's all remembered and stored in the database uh, for the next time it might be activated by the conditions of the present moment. That's the building of our experience and what to do in response to things or experiences that unfold or events that unfold. Is that making sense? If you're not mindful, uh, it just rolls unconsciously. You automatically respond based on how you've created the meaning of the, the moment uh, based on the, the, the experiences that you've already already had in those types of, uh, of conditions. If you hit a novel condition where there aren't any entries in the database, then the imagination kicks in and decides uh, what, what it really means and how to respond to it, and then it tracks the outcome of that, and that's stored in the database, that perceptual database of our conditioning. Still making sense? If you grow up in a household where the automatic response to some, some things was uh, an expression of anger, you might say that that was an afflictive response, that you could then train yourself out of an automatic anger response into something different, uh, an equanimous response or an inquiry response, a curiosity response instead of an anger response. The reason that... Um, the, the training is necessary is because it happens so fast. That whole process usually happens before it enters into consciousness. So the unconscious mind, that uh, Christianness or that jadeness or that Joanna-ness form the response and it rolls into action. And just as you're about to take the action, it enters into consciousness and you have, as Shinzen used to say, three-eighths of a second before the terrorists take over the body. You're already in the action. 
And if you're not perfectly mindful and evaluate what the action is, you're already in the action by the time you recognize it's happening. And if the mind is conditioned to respond in an afflictive way, you're already into an afflictive response by the time it enters consciousness and you have to squash it or you create the karmic thread that is attached, uh, attaches to that negative uh, afflictive response, even though it's a conditioned response, even though that's what your family system trained you to do, because that's how your family system understood what an appropriate response would be. That all making sense so far? Christian. So there's like, there's a couple threads of kind of going at, at once. And so if you're measuring the quality of your response to something, I, I think you only have either your emotion that comes up or you have the conscious response you're going to make that comes up, but you can't understand like the karma of it, the consequence until you've actually chosen the response or not. Right. And so if there's an afflictive or, or a beneficial uh, action that you take, how do you actually know if you're not, you're not truly going to know the effect of the thing. Like sometimes, sometimes it'll be obvious if you're going to say something that would just be a faux pas, but like, or worse. <laughs> right. And, and I've, you know, I certainly wish I had this skill and my time machine, but uh, how are you actually, like, where are you looking at your experience um, to understand what is beneficial right are you, are you looking at your emotional response or are you trying to predict um the karmic outcome of it how do you actually judge like what's the feedback loop to learn the correct um lesson so then we what we're really talking about is the development of the brahma viharas the heart practices and we're looking at the far enemy of uh the cultivation of these intentional positive states uh, and uh, think of them as the afflictive responses. So in loving kindness practice, the far enemy is anger or hatred. In uh, compassion practice, the far enemy is cruelty. In the practice of sympathetic joy, the far enemy is envy or jealousy. And in the practice of equanimity, the far enemy is craving, aversion, or unconsciousness. And so you'll notice as you're tracking these states as they arise, if it falls into any one of those, then we're looking at an afflictive state. And then we have the uh, antidote to those afflictive states, which is the intentional development of the positive alternative to that, the positive opposite, you might say. So I guess embedded in the idea of the Brahma Viharas is that all of them contain some kind of inherent wisdom right that you're not building like a positive delusion by doing them but that actually you'll be operating more skillfully from these so um if you look at say loving kindness practice the poly word for that is metta um you're cultivating a view which i like to call kind open-hearted Q 
curious because it's inclining towards something. And so you're holding a view of that. You notice anger arising and you push the anger view out and replace it with the loving kindness view so that you can examine the conditions of the present moment with a kind of open, kind curiosity rather than with anger or hatred. The near enemy of loving kindness is sentimentality, which is what you're talking about, the Pollyanna-ish distortion of uh, experience or events without actually examining them. Whereas in the active state of loving kindness, you're open to the experience of what's happening and you're able to examine it without the mind being clouded with, by anger. You know, the Buddha said one expression of anger could annihilate a thousand years of kindness. So you can inquire kindly about something that's bothering you or disturbing you and that, that it appears difficult to you, where if you respond with anger, you could uh, damage the relationship in such a way that it's not repairable. With compassion, of course, you're opening to the suffering experience of other people. Uh, not uh, repelling it through an expression of cruelty. One of the uh, couples, uh, therapists um, we worked with, uh, gauged how likely it would be that a couple's relationship could be salvaged in therapy based by the expressions of contempt. Contempt is a, a kind of cold, devaluing anger that one person in the relationship expressed to the other uh, because it's almost impossible for somebody to recover from contempt where you're being judged by somebody as morally unfit. Is that making sense? So that cruelty that comes from that kind of expression. Um, Whereas with compassion, of course, you're opening to the suffering experience of somebody else, helping them to emotionally regulate, and in the process of them emotionally regulating, hopefully that their, their cognitive mind will come back online and they can be collaborative in solving the problem that you're facing. Whereas if, the, if they're overwhelmed by emotion, overwhelmed uh, by uh, the impulse for cruelty, then the cognitive mind is likely offline and they're just responding from conditioning. The far enemy of sympathetic joy is envy or jealousy. What happens when you find that uh, you're envious of somebody's material possessions or social position or jealous of their personal relationships and how distorting of your reality is that? Whereas if you can come into a place of joyfulness. In our culture, uh, which is so goal-oriented and so materialistically oriented, most of the celebrations that we do are around achieving some kind of social position or status. Um, and uh, it's less often I find that people are a celebratory of the discovery of something meaningful. Uh, so much of the insight path 
is really organized around the insights of understanding the nature of the human condition. And it's unusual that those kinds of things are celebrated as opposed to a promotion or a, a, a new place to live or whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a household where every year my dad got, I think it was every year or every other year he got a new car. That was part of the, the, uh, the, the status uh, declaration. The new car smell would wear off and then the desire for another car would come on. <laughs> and it really did appear that he was driving around in his new car, shopping for the next new car, uh, rather than inhabiting the, the car that he was in. Um, so, uh, being joyful for people achieving the things that have meaning to them. When we talked, when we used to talk about this 20 years ago, it was uh, only being joyful for people's spiritual attainments and not for material attainments. But I find uh, we should be joyful for people pursuing the things that have meaning to them and not imposing on them our structure of what would be meaningful or what wouldn't be meaningful. They're pursuing the things that they need to to find out what they need to know. And that's what we're celebrating for them. And then hopefully uh, it's a mutual relationship where they then celebrate those things for you. So you have that uh, sense of acknowledgement that, that you've pursued something and found it out. And then equanimity is this, this basis of evenness The near enemy of uh, equanimity is detachment. And so what we understand about equanimity in this sense is it's fully engaged, it's lively, it's energetic, and it's perfectly balanced. It's not cut off and detached and flat and unfeeling. Well, the image I always like is the surfer, right? Uh, have you ever watched those uh, films or videos of the, the guys or gals that go out and surf a 60 foot wave. It's like this giant wall of water and this little surfboard sticking out of it. <laughs> and it's really super dangerous, but you see this sense of totally locked into the experience and these tiny little movements to contain the balance. And there's this roar of energy. That's kind of the way that I think about equanimity. And then, of course, the, the far enemy of equanimity is getting swept up in craving, aversion, and unconscious, the unruly mind, which is uh, a place of uh, often great suffering. One of the things that you may have noticed about life, even in, in the, the, the relative affluence of most of uh, us in the West who practice, um, or even the outright affluence, uh, is that life is still hard. It's still challenging. Uh, we still can get rocked into quite negative uh, points of view. 
and the suffering around that can be quite intense. And so we want to really understand that we are in charge of the thoughts that we allow the mind to think and that we can we can shift out of uh, negative uh, thoughts that are regulating uh, and negative uh, uh, reactions to the conditions of the present moment of the construction of conceptual realities which are afflictive. And that's a, a matter of practice in doing that. So recognizing mind states and then developing agency to hold the mind state that you uh, want to hold that represents a skillfulness in, in how you uh, participate in the experience of the present moment as it unfolds. I like to practice this uh, around mind states. Uh, so we have a discussion of wet, met, wet heart practices and dry heart practices. In wet heart practices, we're intentionally uh, developing a positive emotional experience that, that's in the body. So we're in the body and we're generating through thought processes an intentionally enjoyable or pleasant emotional state, um, which we can use then to regulate. So a training of regulating the experience of the present moment when we need to by generating positive emotional states. In dry meditation, it's more concentration-oriented and more around the exploration of view. So uh, I think that this is important and is productive in uh, the pursuit of enlightenment because view is one of the things that you need to really understand if you're going to go into that end of practice. What view are you holding? Is the mind equanimous so that there's no distortion in the view so that the data that you're collecting uh, is then transformed into a fairly accurate reflection of what's happening? Or can you recognize when the mind is uh, in uh, anger view or sadness view or fearful view or excited view or loving view or whatever the view is? Um, we also do a lot of attachment work around here, so it's we like to also uh, understand when your attachment view is active. So an attachment view uh, shuts down the exploration capacity and uh, creates the sense of urgency around seeking proximity to somebody who will protect you, somebody who will help you feel safe. But then we could also talk about the loving kindness view, the compassion view, the sympathetic joy view, and the equanimity view, and how that changes things. How that, uh, if you think about it, ultimate reality is the raw data that you take in, and then you process that and, uh, and flip it into conceptual reality in between ultimate reality and conceptual reality is where the view goes. It's like wearing, uh, the metaphor I like is when we were kids and we would go skiing, we would put on these goggles that had a bright orange or a bright yellow uh, filter on them. And you put them on and immediately be aware that the whole color field shifted. 
but then you'd ski, ski down a couple of hills and you'd forget that that was what the view was and you would be operating as if that was how the world looked and it wasn't until you took them off that you recognized that you had been uh in a distortion of what was actually there now the purpose of the that was to create contrast in the snow so that you could see the moguls easier um, but it did color shift everything and then the mind went to correct it and then lost track of it and you were just operating in this uh distorted perception and that's what uh, these uh, these views or these mind states do and if you can't recognize them you wander around as if conceptual reality were unfiltered and that that was actually what was happening so that if you've if you've uh, ever had uh, an issue with anger anger was one of my early uh, challenges and the anger view was there everything would be problematic but it wouldn't appear as if i were angry to myself it would just appear as if everything were problematic and then so the begin this process of being able to recognize what view is there that's the advantage i think of practicing the dry uh divine abodes. Christian? George, I wonder if this is your experience. I have this hunch that like the idea of like a viewer of a mind state is a little tough, but uh, I have this hunch that it's it's not that easy to see a viewer a mind state if you're not used to it, if you're just in that, but that you can see it more clearly and shifting between views so like the arising of anger or the diminishing of anger and the, the contrast of that but if you're just in anger all the time like you know you'd be like the fish in water or like was that your experience in, in becoming aware of that well i wouldn't be angry all of the time and when when i began to pay attention to uh, what view was present so um Part of this is also going to be related to your uh, conditioning, your and in particular your attachment conditioning. One of the things about uh, secure people is that when they were children, their caregivers asked them over and over again what was going on with them, what were they feeling, what were they thinking, how were they viewing things, and so that they would have to learn to understand uh, what was happening. So parent might say, I can't figure out what's going on with you. You seem angry. Are you angry? And then the child would have to investigate whether or not they thought that they were angry or not. You seem really sad. Are you sad? And then the child would have to investigate. You seem really happy. What's going on? What's making you so happy? So the child would have to investigate what that uh, was, right? What was the expression that they were making in that moment that somebody else could interpret as happy and how did they know that that was happening and if that happened enough you would have already learned how to do this if that that didn't happen enough for you then you wouldn't necessarily know uh, or be able to distinguish one from another so if you did have that experience uh, from your caregivers and you can do it then we begin to just train in different kinds of mind states so that you have a wider range of capacity to track them but if that didn't happen for you then the, you begin to ask these questions of your experience now 
what am I feeling? How is that affecting the way that I experience this? If I'm angry, is it distorting my perception of what's happening? If I'm happy, is that distorting my perception of what's happening? We tend to be more pliable, more gullible when we're happy so that somebody who can create a sense of happiness in us has a a better chance of manipulating us than somebody who makes us angry. That making sense, or maybe anger is a good way to do it. Can you track your emotions well enough, and uh, do you have good clarity between uh, the, your emotional reaction to the present moment, the self-generated emotion that's meant to regulate that, the somaticized emotional experience if you have that, and also the empathetic experience of other people, and can you track all of those in real time so that you can really pull this whole thing apart and see the pieces, including what mind state you're in. And then do you have agency? Do you develop the capacity for compassion so that when you notice the mind um, inclining toward a cruel mind, that you can immediately replace that with a compassionate mind or anger with loving kindness, making sense, envy and jealousy with sympathetic joy or craving aversion and unconsciousness with equanimity. So then we practice uh, the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes to develop the capacity not only to recognize the mind state, but then to have agency to monitor what's happening and replace afflictive states with beneficial states in real time, all day long, as we're moving around, uh, taking care of the day to day. Does that make Um, we usually start practice with an easy person. So if you're uh, talking about loving-kindness practice, an easy person in loving-kindness practice is somebody who, when you think of them, the mind naturally inclines toward this uh, particular view um, Sayadaw Indika used to call say that it, it was always cool, always kind, open, friendly, curious. Always cool means there's an absence of the heat of anger. There's an absence of the heat of desire. So uh, desire for... Uh, whatever it is that you're uh, uh, craving, and then the anger uh, that arises in frustration around trying to get the things that you want, a craving of things. And that anger is the far enemy. Always cool, always kind, open, friendly, and because it is inclining towards something, I like to use the word curious for that. Now, in my family system, curiosity is cool. It's not, it's not hot. But I have had people come to me and say that in their family systems, curiosity was hot. Uh, and so that wouldn't be really what I mean. But it's an inclining towards something. It's, an, it's, an, uh, it's a, a desire to explore 
figure something out without heat. So, and then the second category is practicing for self. We have a working model of self. Each time the sense of self arises, this working model of self activates. And the way that we recognize the pattern of self is because all of these little gists that are associated with the working model of self activate. If you have a working model of self that's filled with a lot of negative states and the way that you recognize yourself is through a lot of negative states, self-consciousness, uh, an aversive reaction to the sense of self. That is the seed of self-hatred because each time the sense of self arises, you find yourself in a negative state and then the aversion to being constantly in a negative state begins to arise and then when the sense of self arises, there's a strong aversive response to it. The way into self-love uh, or is to simply load up the working model of self with tons of positive states so that when the sense of self arises, it's a pleasant experience and you enjoy, you enjoy having the experience of, of yourself. So we tend to work in the beginning, uh, touching into an easy person to establish the mind state and then uh, work with the self. When we were on retreat in Myanmar, we spent three days on the easy person. So three days of sitting. And the recommendation was that we spent an hour on each person that we know to see whether or not they were reliable in causing the mind state to arise. And we, we were systematically, it was suggested to us to systematically go through everyone we knew and just sat with them for an hour to see whether the mind inclined toward this uh, loving kindness place or didn't and then to create a short list of people that were reliable in causing the mind to incline toward uh, loving kindness. Once you have the short list, when you want to generate the mindset of loving kindness, you just have to think of them because the working model of themselves will cause that mind state to rise in the creation of the experience of them. So that's where you begin to develop a sense of agency. And then uh, activating the easy person, then activating the sense of self so that you can begin to associate through the process of memory the positive states with the sense of self and do that practice enough until when the sense of self arises almost all of the time or all of the time, it's a pleasant experience to have your sense of self arising. Is that making sense? So why don't we do a little bit of practice uh, tonight with the easy person and then shifting to the sense of self. So go ahead and settle in, ringing the bell. So any comments or questions about that? Christian? So in Buddhism, there's like six senses, right? There's the five senses in the mind, if I understand that. So yeah. how do we... So we have to be able to understand a view through any of those six senses, but you're saying it's not, it doesn't reside within those or like, how does that, how does that work? 
Well, you explore the appearance of conceptual reality. So in a meta-vipassana sense, you use vipassana to deconstruct the appearance of conceptual reality. And you can explore that in any of the sense gates. So it's kind of mediated through the sense of mind? Right. Okay. How do you know something is something? How do you know you're having the experience that you're having? That's the investigation. And is the reflection of uh, ultimate reality in conceptual reality without distortion? The metaphor that the Buddha used was the mirror. So the bowl of 2,600 years ago, the mirror was a, a dark glazed bowl that was filled with water. He said, if the mind were equanimous, is as if the water were still and clear. So the reflection off the surface of the water, that's conceptual reality, uh, is a, an accurate representation of what the sensing experience is. But if the mind were filled with lust, it was as if the water were dyed a bright color, so that when you see the reflection off the surface of the water, it seems vivid and filled with color that isn't actually what's happening. It's because the mind is that way. And if the mind is filled with uh, anger, it's as if the water were boiling, so that the, just the perception on the surface, the reflection of what is coming in off the surface of the mind is very distorted. The mind is restless and agitated. It's as if a breeze were blowing across the surface of the water, causing ripples. If the mind were filled with sloth and torpor, it's as if it were overgrown with algae. If the mind was filled with skeptical doubt, it's as if the water were muddied. So that the, the, the reflective surface of the mind, depending on uh, whether it's equanimous or whether it's distorted by a particular view or mind state, changes the way that ultimate reality appears in when it's um, made into conceptual reality. Now, we often think of visuals for that. If you're a seeing person, we really re re rely on how the world appears to us in that visual tableau that we create. But also understand there's auditory happening and there's a felt sense of the body that's happening that creates the realness of it. And without all three of them coming together, that the appearance of reality is not as substantial. Is that making sense? So when the mind is angry, it distorts the visual, it distorts the auditory, and it also uh, there's feeling behind it in the body, which creates the vividness of it. So we want to explore that and understand how we know something appears to be real to us. And it's going to be some combination of visual, auditory, and the felt sense of the body. So there's a guy who lives on my block, and he has a car, which has a car alarm. And you can hear him turn it on. But almost all of the time when he turns it on, it just goes off and starts honking. Then he turns it off, and then he slams the door to the car again, and then he turns it on again, and then it just goes off. 
And this can go on for 20 minutes until he finally gets uh, the car settled enough that it doesn't go off. But then a car drives by and it goes off. It becomes increasingly annoying, even though it's the same horn honking, right? So anger creates, comes in, and distorts the the outrage of it when it's actually just a horn. <laughs> that making sense? You could hear it just as the horn, and it's just the horn. But when the view comes in and you you add to that moral outrage that this person is subjecting the entire neighborhood to this car horn, it becomes something else. So um, Saturday is the fourth of the, the level one that we are doing in uh, uh, Pacific time, uh, nine uh, to one fifteen. On April 1st, we're starting a uh, um, level one in Central European time. So it's um, 2 p.m. in Europe. Uh, we're doing it from 2 p.m. to 6.15 p.m. for four Saturdays. Uh, if you know somebody in Europe or you're in that time or actually you're on the East Coast and want to do it in the morning, you could do that. Or if you're a real early bird, it starts at five in the morning here in Pacific time. Um, then we have a level two starting in uh, April, uh, if you want to uh, take that on. Uh, and then in June, I'm doing a four day level one in person in Utrecht in the Netherlands, if you want to come to that. Uh, that should be, I think, a fun thing to do. And then uh, in July, we're going to start a level two uh, that's in Central European time, so 7.30 to 9.30 Central European time, p.m., uh, if you want to do a level two in that time zone. Uh, that's what's coming up for the next part. So you take a look at it. Most of that's on the website. Um, I offer this class on a, a Donna basis. Donna is the poly word for generosity. So I offer the, the class freely, but I do hope that if you're resourced and you can make a donation that you do, there's a link on the website uh, uh, to do that. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate your practice. Thanks for coming. It's good to see you and we'll see you soon. Bye now. <laughs>